The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Today we're beginning a study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. It's the ninth book of the Old Testament. The first eight are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and then we get to 1 Samuel. Actually, after Ruth, there are six books of history in the Old Testament that is really pretty easy to get confused about. First and second, you remember those that series? First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. <laughs> a lot of Old Testament history there. So why don't we do a quick overview of these books just to get the setting and the perspective. I think it'll help us to put things in the right place. First Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel in about 1100 BC. And the book closes with the death of Saul about 90 years later, which would be around 1010 B.C. Second Samuel begins with David becoming king after the death of Saul in about 1010 B.C. And it takes us to near the end of David's life, around 970 B.C. So it's basically a history of the reign of King David. It ends with David's last song and David buying the threshing floor of Arona, or sometimes called Ornon, uh, the Jebusite, where God's judgment was halted. You remember that episode? Later on, it would be the very spot where Solomon would build the temple in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. First Kings, the next book, begins with the death of David in 970 and takes us through the reign and the death of Solomon, his son, and on down to the division of the kingdom through the kingship of Ahab and Ahaziah in the northern part, Israel, after it was divided, and Jehoshaphat in the south, Judah, after the division, and also the ministry of Elijah, right up to about 850 B.C. Second Kings begins with the death of Ahaziah and then the removal of Elijah with a fiery chariot around 850 B.C., and it covers the ministry of Elisha, who followed Elijah, the prophet, uh, on through the captivity of the northern kingdom by Assyria, which happened in 722 B.C., and then on down to the destruction of Jerusalem in the south in 586 B.C. So, so there's pretty much a continuous narrative from 1 Samuel right through 2 Kings. When we get to 1 Chronicles, at first it starts with genealogies. There are nine chapters of genealogies. And then we get to chapter 10, and we have a brief restatement of the account of the death of Saul, and then First Chronicles covers the history of the kingship of David. So historically, it covers about the same time period as Second Samuel, 1010 B.C. to about 970 B.C. Second Chronicles covers the reign of Solomon from about 970 B.C. until the destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. So again, it's roughly the same time period as First and Second Kings. But in First and Second Kings, we read about both the northern kingdom, what we call Israel, and the southern kingdom that we call Judah. 
But in Second Chronicles, the focus is almost exclusively on the southern kingdom, on the kings of Judah. Originally, in the Hebrew, the books of First and Second Samuel were really one large scroll. Now, scrolls got very large before they could have nearly as much information as one of our modern books do, uh, but they were unmanageable when they got very big. So this one was pretty close to being unmanageable because it was so large, but it was just Samuel. In the same way, First and Second Kings were on one large scroll. Again, kind of unmanageable. First and Second Chronicles, same thing. They were on one scroll. So there were only three books instead of the six we have. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in the second and third centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And that translation is usually called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek word for 70, by the way. Uh, apparently, a third century Egyptian king commissioned 72 Jewish scholars to translate the Torah for the great library at Alexandria. By the way, at one time that library was an amazing thing. It may have held, some scholars say, over 400,000 scrolls. We don't know for certain. It was a great treasure of antiquity. It was, it was tragic because there was a great fire that destroyed most of it because of invading Roman armies, and, and eventually invading Roman armies destroyed the whole thing. Very sad. <laughs> anyway, the Torah was translated to Greek at that time. The rest of the Old Testament was translated to Greek over the next maybe about 100 years or so. But when these three Hebrew books of, of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles were translated into Greek, all three of those scrolls, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, were split into two scrolls each, just to make them more manageable. Made a lot of sense. But what makes it a little more confusing, they had different names then than they do now. When they were translated into Greek, First and Second Samuel, those two books, were called First and Second Kings. And First and Second Kings were called Third and Fourth Kings. So there were four books of Kings, First and Second, Third and Fourth Kings. It wasn't until the 1500s A.D., after the Protestant Reformation, before they began to be known by the names we use today. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Samuel had their name not because Samuel wrote everything in them. He couldn't have done that because Samuel died before First Samuel was finished. His death recorded in chapter 25 of First Samuel. Jewish tradition said that Samuel did write the first part of 1 Samuel, though, but that Gad and Nathan, you remember those two prophets who ministered during the reign of King David? Gad and, and Nathan wrote the rest of it. But the books are named after Samuel, of course, because of the huge influence Samuel had on Israel during this period of their history, even after his death, he had a huge influence. And you can figure that out as you read it. By the way, ancient Jewish traditions say that Jeremiah was the author of First and Second Kings, and that Ezra was the author of First and Second Chronicles. Turns out that the last few sentences of the book called Second Chronicles are identical, identical word for word to the first few sentences of the book of Ezra, so that makes sense. Definitely a continuity from Chronicles to Ezra. So anyway, for the next couple of months, we're scheduled uh, to be sort of moving in and out of 1 Samuel. We won't be there every Sunday, but we'll be looking at it over these next few weeks, from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. Saul was, of course, the first king of Israel. 
Today, we're going to look briefly at the first chapter of 1 Samuel. In just a minute or two here, I'll get there. Uh, in, in this first chapter, God gives us the account of Hannah's desperate desire and Hannah's prayer for a child. And she promised that if God would give her a child, she would give him back to the Lord. And God answered her prayer. That was the birth of Samuel. And as soon as he was weaned, little Samuel was moved to live with Eli, the high priest, at the tabernacle there in Shiloh, which is where it was located at the time. Then when we get to chapter 2, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 record Hannah's song. It's a song of thanksgiving to the Lord for the way he had blessed her and what he was going to do. And what I want us to do before we look at chapter 1 is skip down to verse 9 of her song. There's something I want you to see there. I want us to look at the ending of Hannah's song. And the reason I want to do this is because, remember, the, the whole point of this Gospel Project series of Bible studies is to show us how the whole Bible points us to Jesus, right? And, and I think this is just fascinating. It's amazing to me, and I love it. So I think you will too. Look at this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the conclusion of Hannah's song. He, talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Do you realize she's concluding this song with a messianic prophecy inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit? She says the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. But remember, up till now, Israel has never had a king. They don't have a king now. They're going to ask for one in, in a few decades, but they haven't even asked for a king yet. So the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through Hannah's song that Yahweh, God, has a king. And that king will sit as judge of the whole earth. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be the anointed one. You see that word anointed? The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. Mashiach. We transliterate that into English as Messiah. When they translated into the Greek, the word anointed was translated into Christos, which we transliterate into the English word Christ, the anointed one. This is actually the first reference to the Messiah in the whole Bible. The word Mashiach, Messiah, is used a few times in Leviticus, but there it's referring to the anointing of the priest, not as a direct reference to the Messiah. It's obviously just talking about the priest. And I, I mean, it was pointing toward the Messiah even then. You could say those anointed ones in the Old Testament, whether they were prophets or priests or kings, Whoever was anointed, in some way they are pointing to the Messiah. But here in Hannah's song, this is a direct reference to the Messiah. And it's the first direct reference in the Bible to the Messiah by name. He's going to be the ultimate judge. He's going to be the ultimate king. The Messiah is going to come one day. This is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus right here in her song. Now, there's some amazing ways that Hannah and Samuel 
point us to Jesus. And I want us to think about that just for a few minutes before we look at chapter 1, verse by verse. Do you remember when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 3, a sermon, he said this, he said, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So Peter's saying that Samuel, he named Samuel, and he points to the other prophets too, but he named Samuel. And it turns out that if we look closely at the life of Samuel, we'll find he does point us to Jesus. There's no doubt about it. So I want us to look at some of those similarities, not, maybe not all of them, but a few of them that I think are pretty exciting. First, both Samuel and Jesus had mothers who had not previously had any children and who experienced miraculous births as, as a result of God's supernatural direct intervention. There's a comparison between Samuel and Jesus. He points us to Jesus by his birth. We also find both Hannah and Elkanah. Elkanah was Hannah's husband. And of course, later on, Mary and Joseph and Luke, bringing Samuel to the tabernacle and Jesus to the temple and receiving blessings there. There's a similarity there. There's a reminder. There's a pointer there. And notice the similar descriptions of young Samuel and young Jesus. Look at this. This is in Samuel. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then the New Testament, the Holy Spirit causes Luke to write something very similar about Jesus. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. I think the Holy Spirit obviously made that very intentional. These are too similar just to be chance. God wanted us to see that Samuel was going to point us to Jesus. Another thing, Samuel began ministering during a time when the religious leaders had become very, very corrupt. So did Jesus. Samuel served, interestingly, as a high priest and as a prophet. And although he wasn't really a king in the true sense of the word, uh, he was the last and greatest of the judges of Israel. And at least in some ways, he carried out the function of a king. And obviously that points us to Jesus. Jesus is the greatest and ultimate high priest and prophet and judge and king. Another thing that's kind of interesting is Samuel was a Levite, but he was outside the line of Aaron, and yet he became the high priest. Well, of course, Jesus wasn't a descendant of Aaron either. He wasn't even from the tribe of Levi, but Jesus is our great high priest. Another similarity, eventually, if you remember the account, Samuel had to witness the people around him that he was trying to minister to, rejecting him and rejecting the leadership of God and demanding a human king so they could be like the other nations around. You remember that? Who turned out to be a pretty ungodly guy. Jesus had experienced the people rejecting him as the Messiah and demanding an ungodly man and in his place. Remember, give us Barabbas. Give us Saul. <laughs> Here's another interesting comparison. When, here's another interesting little similarity. You remember when Samuel told Saul to go to Gilgal later on, and he told him to wait for seven days. He said, I'll come and I'll tell you what to do, but you've got to go wait for seven days. That reminds us a lot of Jesus telling his disciples after his resurrection, 
wait in Jerusalem. In their case, it turned out to be 10 days. He didn't tell them exactly how many, but it was till the day of Pentecost until they were filled with the Holy Spirit so they didn't know what to do. Even the name Samuel meant his name is God. Jesus had another name. You remember his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think Samuel understood that the antecedent to the pronoun his was not Samuel himself. It was the Lord, Jehovah. His name is God. But for Jesus, of course, his name really is God. So the antecedent for Jesus refers to Jesus himself. So in a sense, Jesus is the true Samuel. His name is God. <laughs> One other very interesting thing that we're told about Samuel is in chapter 3, verse 19. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. God inspired the words of Samuel in a special way. It's kind of like he's comparing them to arrows that hit the target. His words accomplished the purpose that he intended for them to accomplish. And we know that's true about the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are the words of God. His words never fell to the ground. His words never returned void. His words always accomplish exactly what he intended. There's another amazing similarity. Another similarity, we have songs of praise from both Hannah and Mary recorded in Scripture. Hannah is praising God because he's chosen her, a lowly, barren woman, to give birth to a boy who will be a powerful type of the coming Messiah. Mary is praising God, of course, because he's chosen her, a lowly virgin, to give birth to the actual Messiah. But both of them are praising God for miraculous births. And each woman has this keen sense of awareness that this boy she's given birth to has to be released to God. They don't get to keep their kid, not really. They both have to let go of their sons to their son's higher callings. And then when we look at their songs, we see both of them expressing their joy in the Lord. They both rejoice over the fact that the Lord sees and cares about and acts on behalf of the poor and lowly people of the world. They're very similar. Hannah's song begins like this. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn or my strength is exalted in the Lord. And Mary's song begins. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Very similar. Hannah sings, there's none holy like the Lord. Mary sings, holy is his name. <laughs> Did you hear that echo? Hannah sings, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Mary sings, he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, and he's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. And both Hannah and Mary recognize in their songs that true greatness and true power are ultimately not in the, in the lives of kings and rulers of this world, that God's going to bring those rulers down, and he's going to overrule the proud, and he's going to overrule the arrogant. You see that theme in both of these songs. So it's, I think there are a lot of amazing similarities, don't you? It's just amazing and beautiful pointing to Jesus in the life of Samuel and Hannah. One of my favorite passages of scripture, and I bet it is yours too, is when Jesus appeared immediately after his resurrection to two of his disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? Just after he'd risen from the dead. And do you remember what he did? 
Look at this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I suspect, obviously I can't prove this, but I suspect, and I can almost imagine hearing Jesus say to those guys, hey, let's talk about Hannah. Let's talk about Samuel. <laughs> and it must have been an incredibly exciting conversation. So we need to thank God for the example of Hannah and Samuel and using those two very faithful Old Testament saints to point us to Jesus. It's pretty awesome. So with that bit of introduction, let's go ahead and dig in a little bit here for a few minutes in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Remathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Now you may remember from our study of Ruth the other day, you may remember that Ephrath or Ephrathah were ancient names for the town of Bethlehem. But it gets a little confusing because sometimes the residents of Ephraim, you can hear the similarity in the sound of the name, sometimes the Ephraimites were called Ephrathites. Uh, and Bethlehem was definitely not in the land of Ephraim. Bethlehem was in the land of Judah, south of Ephraim. So it's possible that Elkanah was called an Ephrathite just because he was from Ephraim even though he wasn't Ephraimite, we'll see that, he was a Levite. But it's possible he was originally from Bethlehem and was called an Ephrathite because he was from Bethlehem and had migrated into Ephraim. We just don't know for sure. You may remember that when the Promised Land was divided into tribal allotments, the 12 tribes, you know, each given their allotment, that Joseph received two allotments, one for each of his sons. Ephraim had a big allotment, and Manasseh had a big allotment. They were two very large tribes. Ephraim became such a large tribe that sometimes the whole northern kingdom was referred to as Ephraim. But, like I said, Elkanah was not really a descendant of Ephraim. First Chronicles 6 tells us very clearly he's a Levite. But if you remember, the Levites didn't have a specific allotment of, of land as a tribe. They had certain cities they were responsible for. And they were spread out all over the kingdom, all over Israel, both north and south. So later on, when the kingdom divided after the death of Solomon, remember, some of the Levites were in the north, what was called Israel, and some of them were in the south, in Judah. But after the kings of the north rebelled so horrifically against God, every single one of them, if you remember, of the kings of the north rebelled against God, most of the Levites eventually migrated to the south with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That's going to be about 150 years, though, from where we are here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Two wives. <laughs> Guess he's way ahead of his time, huh? They're doing that again today, right? Well, they call that a thruple. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, many of the men of the Old Testament had more than one wife. I'm sure you're aware of that. And sometimes I think we find ourselves asking, why did God let that happen? What's going on here? And maybe some people wonder, is it really wrong? I mean, the Bible doesn't say Thou shalt not have more than one wife, does it? I mean, it doesn't sit in so many words anyway. When we get to the New Testament, we don't find Jesus making a statement about polygamy at all, but we do find Jesus being asked a question about why the law of Moses prevented divorce. Remember that? And Jesus answered this way. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And when he said from the beginning, he's referring to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the divorce issue becomes pretty complicated. There's several New Testament passages that deal with it. Uh, we're not going to go there today. <laughs> but I'll say this in brief. There are generally two specific reasons for divorce given in the New Testament. One of them is adultery. The other is abandonment. But a careful study of that issue really does involve some time because there can be some implications and nuances and sometimes some disagreement, of course, as we study these things. Maybe someday we'll go there but because but, so many of us have been through it or touched by it. Not today. But the point here is that while Jesus doesn't specifically address the issue of multiple wives, many scholars would say, look, the same principle would apply. God permitted it but it certainly wasn't God's ideal. It also seems when you read through the Old Testament very carefully and you read what happens to the men who have multiple wives and what the consequences of that turn out to be, it's like God wants to make sure that when we read those accounts, we understand that the consequences are always not so good. <laughs> there were always problems associated with the practice, big problems, didn't work out very well. But having said that, we know that the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel came from two wives and two concubines, four different women, sons of Jacob. And like I said, we don't see specific prohibitions against having more than one wife written in the law. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21, there's a law that regulates the situation of a man that does have two wives. Let's just read that real quickly. If a man has two wives the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved wife, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he's the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So, so here's a passage, very interestingly, that's regulating polygamy. Doesn't seem to forbid it, just regulates it. Caleb, Gideon, Abraham, Jacob, of course, David, Solomon, all these guys had multiple wives. But when we get to the New Testament, when marriage is dealt with, the assumption is always that a man will have one wife. <laughs> and when Paul says that marriage is meant to symbolize the relationship with Christ and the church, there's only one church, one body. And for marriage to represent that relationship, one wife is the only thing that makes sense. So maybe God permitted it for a reason, for a while, but it's not God's ideal, it's not God's plan, and I don't believe God permits it now. Some have argued that having multiple wives and, and maybe even concubines was a way that some women in that day could have been provided for who might otherwise have had no godly way of making a living. At least at times, there may have been a lot more women in the culture than men because of warfare. A lot of the men were killed. So for these women, living in a home with multiple wives might have been better than prostitution or slavery or starvation or being unprotected at the mercy of ungodly men. But I understand some, some people could probably argue, well, couldn't God have come up with a, another system for taking care of single women and widows other than polygamy? 
And I just don't know the answers to all those questions. So I don't, I don't, we can't quite put ourselves in those people's places. It, it was different back then. So I think it's one of those things we'll just have to wait for the Lord to come back to get a satisfactory answer that will maybe completely satisfy us. And maybe we won't care then. Who knows? But in any case, Elkanah had two of them, two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. The Lord. Shiloh was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. It was where the tabernacle and the ark were located at this particular time. Remember, the tabernacle was portable and, and the ark, of course, moved with it. So it would move from time to time. It wouldn't be too long after this certainly before Saul became king, that the tabernacle and the ark became separated. And they remained separated for many decades until Solomon built the temple around 964 B.C. after David was dead. Some of you may remember some of that account because we looked at it just a few weeks ago when we studied the tabernacle of David. If you haven't, if you haven't watched that video, I would encourage you to watch it. It's a fascinating account if you've never studied it before. You can find that video in the class YouTube list. If you, if you need help finding it, let me know. I'll be glad to help you find it or send you a link. But at least at this point, the ark and the tabernacle are together at Shiloh. When we get to chapter 2, we will learn how these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli, how ungodly they were. So what we're going to get here is a very strong contrast between men who were supposed to be spiritual leaders, but who were very, very ungodly, and two normal, ordinary folks, Elkanah and Hannah, who were very godly. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So here we have a picture of a husband <laughs> I guess, doing his best to be a blessing to his wife, Hannah. But as we will see, it's just not enough. And it's pretty easy to imagine how his favoritism might have increased tensions between these two women. Uh, I can imagine that Hannah might have been struggling with jealousy because Peninnah has all the kids and she doesn't have any children. Peninnah certainly could be jealous because her husband was partial towards Hannah, obviously. And Peninnah taunts Hannah. And so Hannah is just a miserable woman. And, and of course, in verse 6, we, we see one of the reasons she's so miserable. These women are called rivals. <laughs> the Hebrew word could be translated adversaries. Couldn't have been very pleasant. So there's tension between Peninnah and Hannah. And Peninnah seems to be acting in a pretty selfish, ugly way. Maybe because she knew that in spite of the fact that she was the one giving Elkanah the children, that Elkanah obviously preferred Hannah, and Hannah is miserable. At least logically, this probably led to some misery for Elkanah too, wouldn't you think? <laughs> and we might be tempted to say, okay, Elkanah, <laughs> you thought you wanted two wives, huh? How's that working out for you now? Probably a lot of misery in this situation. And if we stopped right here in the narrative, our tendency might be to ask, okay, Lord, why, why did you do that? Why did you let the nasty woman have the kids and not let the godly one have the kids? But we can look back on it now and see the whole story. God has a plan. And as often the case, he teaches us over and over again, we have to trust him until his plan is all worked out. 
And there will be many, many times we cannot understand the why questions. That's why he gave us a verse, like, for example, my ways are higher than your ways. He says the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may not understand what he's doing until many years later or decades later, or maybe not until this life is over, but we have to trust him. He's got it all under control. He has a plan. Meanwhile, it's not necessary that we know the answers to all the whys. We just need to learn to trust him. It's very clear in scripture. <laughs> this is a trivial example, I guess, but it's not been too long ago since when I looked at the two people who were running for president of the United States, scratching my head saying, Lord, why these two? <laughs> Couldn't we have a better choice? But God had a plan. We just have to trust him. He always has a plan. Verse seven. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Elkanah's a typical man. Is he? he doesn't get it. He, he certainly doesn't seem to be particularly sensitive here, does he? You don't have a son? Hey, babe, you got me. <laughs> what more could you possibly want, honey? <laughs> I'm sure that really satisfied Hannah. <laughs> Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This verse, I think, illustrates her godliness. She didn't try to blame Elkanah. She didn't scream at him, as far as we know, or at God. She's upset, and she's emotional, and she's weeping. But what she chooses to do is pray. Instead of blame, she's praying. I think that's one of the reasons why we think of Hannah, we remember, we think of her as a godly woman, don't you? Prayer is always a good choice. <laughs> she chooses to pray. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. First of all, the phrase Lord of hosts, it's a common way that God refers to himself in the Old Testament and people pray to him in the Old Testament. It's used over 250 times as a reference to God. It's another way of saying he's the God of the angel armies. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Tzabah. You see that Greek form twice in the New Testament, transliterated into Greek, Lord of Sabaoth. And if we aren't paying close attention when you read through those verses in the New Testament, you may think he's saying Lord of the Sabbath, but it's a different word. Totally different word means totally something totally different. It means Lord of hosts. And maybe she's thinking, Lord, I'm involved in spiritual warfare here. I'm under attack here. And you have angel armies at your disposal. Would you please rescue me, Lord of hosts? She's praying to the God of angel armies. When she said, no razor shall touch his head, she's referring to the Nazarite vow. She's saying, according to the Nazarite vow described in Numbers chapter 6, I'm going to dedicate him to you for his whole life. He'll be a Nazarite. Do you remember the three requirements of the Nazarite vow by any chance? There were three specific requirements if somebody chose to make a Nazarite vow. No grapes. 
or grape products. No grape juice, no wine, no vinegar, no raisins, no grape seeds, no grape skins. They couldn't touch the grapes. Number two, no cutting of the hair. As long as they were in that vow, they could not cut their hair. And number three, no nearness to dead bodies. Even if those were close family members, they could not touch a dead body while they were under the Nazarite vow. Do you know how long the vow was supposed to last? <laughs> Trick question. The truth is nobody really does know. Could be any length of time. Jews have said in the past that it had to be for at least 30 days. But it could have been for a lifetime, of course, as it was the case with Samuel. By the way, uh, it's kind of an interesting side note here. Since in order to conclude the vow, the Nazarite had to make certain offerings at the tabernacle. And later on, of course, that was the temple. They had to go make certain offerings to end the vow. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 70 years after the birth of Christ, the Orthodox Jews decided there's no way to end the vow. So if you want to become a Nazarite after 70 AD, you automatically have to agree you're going to be a Nazarite for life. There's no way to end it. <laughs> And I think, as far as I know, it's, it's virtually unheard of now for anyone to actually become a Nazarite. Do you know why people would enter into a Nazarite vow? Well, the only thing mentioned in number six was to separate oneself to the Lord, to be holy to the Lord. But when we read early Jewish literature on this subject and sources, when they talked about the Nazarite vow, they said some people would become a temporary Nazarite to express thanksgiving, sometimes after the birth of a child, sometimes after being healed, if they'd been sick, sometimes after receiving some other great blessing from the Lord. It was just a way of expressing gratitude. There are three men in the Bible who we assume were lifelong Nazarites. Do you remember who they were? Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist. Samson is specifically called a Nazarite in Judges chapter 13. We assume Samuel is a Nazarite, not because he's called a Nazarite, but on the strength of this verse we're looking at here. All it says is specifically his hair would not be cut. And there's no mention of dead bodies. and There's no mention of grapes here. But mentioning the hair, I think, is probably shorthand for saying, I'll make him a Nazarite. He'll, he, will, he will enter into a Nazarite vow from his, from his birth. She also said he would be dedicated to the Lord all his life. That reminds us of the dedication of a Nazarite vow. We assume John the Baptist was a Nazarite because the angel told his dad, Zacharias, before he was born, that he would drink no wine or strong drink and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, separated, set apart, no wine, no grapes. So it's a little hard for us to know exactly how it was used, but it seemed to serve the purpose, maybe something like fasting. You know, fasting is a time when we can voluntarily enter a time of focusing and concentrating just completely on the Lord. Maybe a, a Nazarite vow time would be a time just to focus on the Lord, to express thanksgiving, like I said, or maybe to pray for direction or pray for wisdom Maybe just to try to get to know the Lord a little bit better personally. Maybe spend some extra time in his word. I think maybe for us, a Nazarite vow can remind us that it's a good thing, whether we, it's not really a Nazarite vow, but it just reminds us it's a good thing for us to have times when we kind of separate ourselves from the routines and busyness of life. Have you ever gotten there where you just seem like life is busy and you're full of 
urgent things and it goes on and on and on and on and and every now and then you just just kind of get this prompting at the end that you need to back off a little bit slow down a little bit take a little bit of time just to focus on the lord get away maybe for a while times of fasting can do that spiritual retreats can do that do you ever take spiritual retreats Vicky and I used to, we don't do it as much as we used to. We need to, we need to do it again. There's no question about it. I'm feeling guilty about it as I talk about it right now. But we used to schedule weekends over at Fall Creek Falls. That was before they tore down the building that we used to stay in. Uh, but we, we schedule these weekends for spiritual retreats. And sometimes we just enjoyed each other's presence in a pleasant environment for a couple of days. But often as we we're together driving through this beautiful creation in that area. It's gorgeous over there. Or, or as we ate a meal away from home, like over there in the, in the restaurant, or we sat in our room, sometimes out on the balcony overlooking the lake, or, or as we hiked through the woods there, we would be talking to the Lord and talking with each other about maybe some issues that he would have brought to our minds or situations that he brought into our lives, things we need to pray especially for, seeking some wisdom from him. Sometimes we spend some extra time in Bible study just trying to get to know him better. I think it's a good thing. I'm feeling convicted right now. <laughs> I need to talk to my wife and set up another spiritual retreat. From time to time, a church can give a pastor a few weeks or maybe a few months just to concentrate on the Lord. So just take some time off. You know, a pastor gets into the, I started to say grind. It's not really a grind. It's a beautiful process of hearing from the Lord, putting together messages and doing all the other jobs that a pastor has to do. But sometimes he's spending so much time and energy doing that. He just needs to back off a little bit and spend some extra time for, have some extra time for study, or prayer, writing, maybe all that reminds me at least of a, a Nazarite vow time of separation to the Lord. But Hannah was saying, Lord, I'm giving this son to you to be separated into you his entire life. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. <laughs> so here we have a godly woman being totally misunderstood. And she was misunderstood by somebody very important, <laughs> Eli, the high priest. And I think maybe there's a lesson for us here, too. We need to make up our minds that we won't be too surprised when our devotion to the Lord is misunderstood. Sometimes other people, sometimes even in our own families, some of you may have experienced this, people will misunderstand our love and devotion to the Lord. They may think we're being foolish. They may think we're wasting our time. They may think we've gone off the deep end. <laughs> We're just plain weird in their eyes. And in our day, it can get even worse. Our devotion to, to the Lord in some people's ears sounds harsh and sounds, they, they think it's unloving. They think we're being hateful and bigoted because we're so devoted to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's what the day we're living in now. Listen, guys, we need to get ready for that. Don't be surprised. Uh, remember, there are many of God's men who, who, served the Lord with diligence, but nobody responded. Nobody listened. Nobody paid attention. They were pretty much standing alone. Sometimes we may be there. We may be misunderstood. And when it happens, we've got to make a choice. Are we going to just stand for the Lord, even when we are misunderstood? 
Or we're going to say, ooh, I don't like being misunderstood and put our light under a bushel, try to hide and lay low. <laughs> we got a decision to make sometimes, and it's kind of tough. So Hannah was misunderstood, and we will be misunderstood too. But look what Hannah does in verse 15. But Hannah answered, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Do you see her description of what she's been doing? She's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. Pouring out her soul. That sounds like what we might call fervent, passionate, intense praying, doesn't it? There are times, I think, if you're like me, when we pray for things because we know we're supposed to be praying for those things. And yet we're not really praying with much emotion. <laughs> and then there are other times when we have such a great burden for something that we pray with a lot of passion and great emotion. And I think it's worth thinking about that a little bit. Do you think from God's perspective that prayers of great intensity or passion are more effective than prayers prayed without much emotion? You know, there's a verse in James chapter 5 or 16 that may be coming to your mind. King James says the effectual fervent prayer, the word is energeo, we get our word energy from it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way, the intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. But we've got to be careful with that verse because, for example, the ESV translation translates it differently. It says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The NIV translates it kind of similar to that. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So obviously it's a little bit hard for the translators to tell whether it means a righteous man's prayer is powerful and effective or the intense prayer of a righteous man is powerful. Because the word energeo can refer to the fact that the prayer accomplishes things. The prayer is effective, not necessarily the prayers empowered by emotional intensity on the part of the one who's praying. So we've got to be careful with that verse. There's also a verse in Jeremiah, you may remember, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That sounds like passion to me. There's a passage in Revelation directed at the church at Laodicea, you probably will remember this, where he said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That sounds like a call for passion for the Lord. I suppose we could say, well, in these passages, he's talking specifically about passion to follow the Lord, passion to obey the Lord, passion in trusting the Lord. And being passionate for the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that every single prayer you pray is prayed with a lot of emotion, maybe. I mean, there are times, I think, when we all probably get emotional about a prayer need, especially when it involves our own family, someone we deeply love, and, and we feel like this is getting really intense, and sometimes we just we pray with great emotion. You've probably been there. But sometimes it just seems we, we just don't have enough emotional energy to go around. Have you been there? <laughs> you know, we we're praying for someone. They have a serious need, and we're praying seriously. Sometimes we just don't know that person very well, so we find ourselves praying without much emotion, without much passion or energy. Do you think that means that prayer is not very effective? Well, God knows our hearts. And even if our emotions are not very intense, 
Sometimes our, our heart and mind is very serious and very intense. So I don't think it means he doesn't hear it just because we're not praying emotionally all the time. But I, I think intuitively, it seems to me, we realize some prayers will be, ought to be, pretty passionate. And that seems like a very good thing. Hannah seems to be praying with passion. She's pouring out her heart to God. Also notice, Hannah explained herself to Eli. I think it's obviously the right thing for her to do at this moment. He misunderstands her. She's being misunderstood. And she explains. But I think this raises another interesting question. When we are falsely accused, or when we're misunderstood, should we explain ourselves? Is it the right thing to do? Or should we just keep quiet and go on? I think this is a great example of why it's important to examine the Bible very carefully, uh, maybe what it says in a lot of different places about a situation like this. Because when we look at several examples, what it, it seems to me pretty clear that there are times when we really do need to do our best to explain things, to explain our behavior, explain our words, explain our beliefs to whoever might listen. But listen, there are times when we just realize it's, it's, it's futile to, to explain. I don't need to try to defend myself. It's just going to be wasted effort and maybe even worse, something worse. Jesus is a perfect example, I think, of this. And we find him doing both near his death. Peter writes this about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You remember the passage the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when God sent Philip to talk with him? You remember that, that episode? He was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He was reading this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. It's a prophecy of Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that was a prophecy fulfilled by Jesus at his trial. Look at this. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. When Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, we read this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him, so he questioned him at some length. But he made no answer. And Jesus kind of explains this a little bit in, in Luke chapter 22, after he'd been arrested and beaten and blasphemed. We read this. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And look at this verse. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. You see what's happening here? Jesus set an example. There are times when it really is best to say nothing. Jesus understood that perfectly. But there were other key points where Jesus did give answers. Look at this. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And here it doesn't say Jesus made no further reply. It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus gave him an answer. How do you tell when to give an answer and when not to give an answer? Are there some principles here that help us? Well, there's some principles given in Scripture that should help us at times like this. In fact, there are a couple of back-to-back -back verses in Proverbs that speak to this issue. Look at this. Verse 4 of Proverbs 26 says, Answer not a fool, answer not a fool, according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And immediately after that, in verse 5, he says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it, answer not or answer? <laughs> so he's saying here, I think, Make sure you're not just descending to a level of foolishness yourself. If you answer a fool just like he is and you act silly like he is, uh, you're not doing any good. You know, Don't get out on his level. We live in a day when it's very easy to read an article or a comment online or on Facebook or somewhere and, and then respond to it. And sometimes over and over again, I've seen someone write something from a particular viewpoint. Maybe they're conservative. Maybe they're liberal. And somebody disagrees with him but was calling him names and calls him a jerk or a bigot or a hater or a moron. And I, I've been responded to like that before. I don't do much of that kind of thing anymore. I don't, I don't do any social media these days except to post these things. But I, I think that kind of response is a violation of Proverbs 26.4. The person writing the comment might have been, from God's perspective, a fool. But we become fools, too, when we just get down on his level. You see, that's what God's saying. And there are times when if you don't say something, God's pointing out, the person who's just made a foolish comment will think he's being very clever, very wise. And sometimes we need to learn how to respond in a loving, wise, gracious way to give him and others who may be reading or listening a chance to see some wisdom. You know, that, that can happen. There's some people God says that we should just never even try to correct, for example, Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer. Don't do it. Don't reprove a scoffer. It's a command. Why? He's just going to hate you. You reprove a wise man, he'll love you. But you reprove a scoffer, he, he's not going to respond. God's warning us that some people are just not going to receive reproof. God calls them scoffers. And he says when somebody's proven that they're not going to willing to accept reproof or correction, don't try. Just Just quit. Uh, and he explains, he's just, he's just going to get hated for it. There's no point in it. <laughs> Jesus said something similar to that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't give dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. They'll just trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So there's some people, if you give them holy explanations, they're going to ridicule. They're going to attack you. Jesus said, when you figure out that you're dealing with people like this, as soon as you realize it, just back off. Don't keep throwing your pearls before them. <laughs> Don't try to explain. It's not going to do any good. Some people just, they're just going to trample you. In the case of Pilate, at least part of the time, Jesus knew it was important for Pilate to have some accurate information. Pilate needed to know, for example, that Jesus was not raising an army to go against Rome <laughs> or Pilate. <laughs> Jesus told him truth about his kingdom. It's not of this world. But I think the answer to the question I ask is sometimes we just have to pray hard for discernment. It isn't always easy to tell when to speak and when to keep silent. Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to speak and there's a time to keep silent. So we just need to say, Lord, uh, is it going to glorify you 
if I respond? Or if I respond, is it going to not really do any good? It's just going to turn out to be foolish. Help me, Lord. I need to help. I need help. I can't, I can't figure this out on my own. It's not always easy to discern. But this was a time for Hannah to speak up, so she did. Verse 17, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now her behavior indicates that she's convinced her prayers have been heard, and the answer's coming. We don't know if Eli knew that he was speaking a word from God for Hannah, but she seems to realize that's what, was, that's what it was. She had had a word from God now. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Notice she did not wait to see the answer before she worshiped. You see that? She worshiped immediately. Worshiping God while answers to prayers are on the way is an important principle. We don't quit worshiping until God gives us an answer. We demonstrate our faith by continuing to worship. We know God's great. We know he's almighty and all-powerful. We know he's all-wise. We know he's all-loving. We know at the right time he'll do the right thing, whatever our request may be, whatever we're praying for, whatever we're waiting for. So while we wait, we keep on praising him, worshiping him all through the process, even if you don't know what the answer is, even if you never see it in this life. That's what we do. That's what she's doing. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Now this is interesting. The name Samuel literally means his name is God. But the sound is similar. The sound of the Hebrew word is similar to the Hebrew word for I have asked. Now I can't pronounce Hebrew words very well. But Samuel, just to give you an idea here, is something like, Shemuel, Shemuel. I have asked is another Hebrew word, and it's something like Sha'el. So she's kind of making a play on words here because Shemuel sounds a lot like Sha'el in Hebrew. So she's calling him Samuel because the sound of his name, Samuel, reminded her of the fact that she had asked for him from the Lord. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. The Bible doesn't give us the age for weaning. Most commentators who, are, who study these things in Jewish history and records say that usually weaning took place at three or four years of age in ancient times, and sometimes as late as six. So we're not told here how old Samuel was. Elkanah's response seems wise. He sees the importance of Hannah keeping Samuel until he's weaned. But his last words could be taken more than one way, but they may be kind of a mild warning. Just, just make sure, Hannah, you don't interfere in what God's doing. God's doing something here. You made a commitment. Be sure to keep it. It might not be like that. It might just be an encouragement. The Lord will fulfill his promise. Everything's going to be fine. But the Hebrew seems to suggest, I've read, that there's a little bit of a gentle warning there. 
Verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. The Hebrew word lent, that's an interesting word here, but it's probably better translated given. Interesting, it's the same word, just a, just a different parsing of the word in Hebrew as the word asked, which sounds like the name of Samuel. So here's another play on the words. He's Samuel, and the sound of his name reminds Hannah that she asked for him, but it also reminds her that he's given to the Lord. Don't you know this had to be a day of great mixed emotions for Hannah? Samuel, her little boy, is never going to live with her in her home again. There has to be a, a lot of sadness associated with that. I mean, he's, he's like a preschooler. <laughs> I've known moms who go into hysterics almost when their 18-year-old sons leave home, <laughs> which to most dads probably seems like a time to cheer. <laughs> but to many moms, it seems to be a time of grief. And to give up a preschooler? Hmm, that had to be really, really tough for her. But Hannah realizes Samuel is a gift from the Lord. He was born for this. And so at this very emotional moment, she prays and she worships the Lord in a beautiful song. And the Lord caused the words of her song to be written down for us. And it's the first part of chapter two. It's a magnificent song. If you haven't read it or if you haven't read it in a long time, I would encourage you to read it and study it for yourself. But we don't need to do that today. It's getting late. We need to stop right here. So let's stop and pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word. As all of your word, it's very powerful, awesome, sharper than a two-edged sword. You teach us so much if we'll just listen to your word. And Lord, we thank you for the way you arranged the lives of Hannah and, and little Samuel, the way you put it all together and then caused Samuel to grow up a Nazarite, a judge, a priest, a, 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 a prophet, to point us to the ultimate anointed one, our Lord Jesus. And Hannah seemed to somehow recognize that in her song, Lord, and we praise you for that, for the way you put this into your word. So thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for showing us again and again how you've, from the very beginning, planned for Jesus to come. And in all of your word, you have these incredible passages that point us to Jesus. Help us to learn some valuable lessons from what we studied today. But help us most of all to realize you're a God who deserves a lot of praise and glory and worship. Help us to do that well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.